0: Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations Podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Graham Simpson. Fans of Final Draft on 2SER will know Graham for his phenomenally successful books, The Rosie Project and The Rosie Effect. And today, Graham is joining me to discuss the third and final book in the series, The Rosie Result. I'm Andrew Popel and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney and there I speak with an Australian writer and together we explore their books, writing and literary culture. The Great Conversation podcast expands on that discussion and gets behind the scenes of the book and explores pressing issues in our world. Great Conversations is back for 2019, and I'm ready to keep sharing a love of Australian writing. Now, over the break, I've received many exciting new releases, and with events like the Stella Prize and Sydney Writers' Festival coming up, I just know it is going to be a great year. So, why not share the love of books with a friend and recommend this podcast to them? Just by hitting subscribe, they'll have a great new episode every week. That's, that means a new book to discover, and you'll have a new friend to discuss books with. Now, the Rosie result is the third chapter in the story of Don Tillman and Rosie Jarman. When we left them, they had narrowly avoided marital breakdown in New York and were about to start a family. Now, some 11 years later, Don, Rosie and their son Hudson are returning to Australia following a quick decision after Don stabs himself in the leg with an oyster knife. Things in Australia get tricky as Hudson has trouble settling into his new school and Don must face the similarities between Hudson and himself and find a way to give Hudson the support that he feels he never had. Now, if you haven't met Don Tillman, he's the brainchild of Graham Simpson and star of his Rosie novels. So this might be a good time to pause your listening device and go read The Rosie Project, read The Rosie Effect, or both. I could tell you that Don is a geneticist, or that he is proficient in martial arts and cocktail making. I could describe Don's pragmatic and logical thinking, but that still wouldn't properly introduce you to this wonderful character. The Rosie Result is the third chapter in the story of Don Tillman and Rosie Jarman. When we left them, they'd narrowly avoided marital breakdown in New York and were about to start a family. And now, some 11 years later, Don, Rosie and Hudson are returning to Australia following a quick decision after Don stabs himself in the leg with an oyster knife. And uh, joining me (laughs) to discuss... The Rosie Result is its creator, Graham Simpson. Graham, thanks for joining me in the studio. Well, great to talk to you again. I think it was four years ago that we last spoke about the Rosie uh, the Rosy
1: uh, Effect. Mm. And um, you know, i just think of time passing. That you've asked your listeners to turn off, read the Rosie Project, read the Rosie Effect. So they're back now, about 15 hours or so
0: later. It's 11 years on in Don and Rosie's life. It's fantastic. And look, I was. Being deliberately obtuse there, because Don would never make a choice in such a capricious way, stab myself in the leg and then decide. The oyster knife incident was simply part of a series of events that Don considered in making what he assumes is the most logical decision. But what brought you back to Don and Rosie some 11 years in the novel after you left them?
1: Well, after I wrote The Rosie Project and I was on book tours and so forth and talking to readers, what they wanted next was a prequel. They said, look, this is this is all great. We're seeing an adult person who we would now acknowledge is on the autism spectrum. Mm. We're seeing this adult person, how he deals with his life and so on. We'd love to know what he was like as a kid. Um, because when we talk about autism, as as we'd say today, um, rather than Asperger's, when we talk about autism, um, we tend to think of kids. Mm. So I said, what was Don like as a kid? And I thought well, that would be an interesting story to write, but it would be set in, say, the 1970s or 80s. And attitudes then were really quite different to what they are now. So it might be an interesting sort of historical document, but it would be limited in what it had to say about how we do things today. Mm. Um, but then in the second book um, where, where they have a child, I realized there was the opportunity mm. that if I let this child grow up, so I deliberately made the child male. I wanted to deal with a, a boy, so as much like Don as possible. Mm. If I let this child grow up to a, a, an age where we could, we could look at him struggling with the same problems that Don had, we'd be able to treat him as Don's um, uh, avatar, if you like, in, in the present. Mm. And at the same time, in telling the story, Don would reflect on his own childhood. So we'd still have this
0: picture of Don's childhood, but it would be flesh on the bones rather than the main, the main skeleton of the story. That's so interesting, the idea of a prequel. I, I don't think it could have been as, as lightly, uh, lightly done and having so many of the humorous touches that you include, given, given maybe the state of understanding and knowledge um, in the 70s as we compare to now.
1: Yeah, look. I think when you when you're writing a novel, that that premise, that that setting, and so forth, is just so crucial. It's yours to lose after that. But if I'd gone back and, and written a prequel, I'd have been always limited by that, as you say. Here, it just opened up so many possibilities. Mm-hmm. Particularly the idea of having two potentially autistic people, at least, on the page, and and to an extent, the blind leading the blind, because the the premise of the book of the um, the Rosy Result is that Don sets out to teach his son Hudson all the
0: things that he wishes he'd known when he was at school and thus solve all of Hudson's difficulties. Yeah, so we've we've got Hudson. Now, he's none too happy about this move to Australia. I mean, he's American. He's, he was born there. He's grown up there. Um, he's far too clever to be simply taken in by empty excuses. And in Hudson, we yeah, we have these aspects of Don's logic, his practicality, as well as sort of Rosie's heart and temperament. You discuss a lot of the genetic and sociological factors that go into forming a child's self in in the book. Not too academically, I hope. (laughs) No, not at all, no. In fact, you you really sort of make it very accessible. But I was actually wondering what it's like for you as a writer when your creations procreate. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Look, from a practical point of view... Um,
1: When you're writing a a sequel, one of the the things that makes it a lot easier is you already have fully formed characters. They're going to progress, and I think we see that um, Don in particular progresses as a human being. I mean, he was pretty naive when we first met him. Now he's been married, living with another person, um, a savvy sort of person for 12 13 years, you expect some progress to be made, he's not, he's not dumb in any way he's, he's learnt to adapt to all of this, so we've seen those sorts of changes, but nevertheless you've got a, a bedrock of, of established characters, and I bring many of the characters from mm-hmm. The Rosie Project and The Rosie Effect back in this, in this final book in the series, but the challenge is always the new key characters that you introduce mm-hmm. so the procreation for me meant I've got this character Hudson, who's going to be the second most important character um, in the book, after Don um, what's he going to be like and for me, once I had the premise of the book sorted out, the single biggest challenge was to make Hudson credible, relatable. Mm.
0: Did you have any of your own uh, literary genetic uh, questions? Because, of course, say a character like Blanche um, is, a, is a effectively a blank slate for you. But Hudson, I guess, has to conform a little bit to, to the fact that he is Don and Rosie's child.
1: Yeah, look, and that, that suited the story in any case, because if he'd been totally different from Don, Don wouldn't have presumed to, to advise him. But what Don sees is more than just his child. He sees himself. Um, he projects. And, and in many ways, um, this book is a little bit about the, the nexus between um, what I might call projection and empathy, if mm-hmm. you like. You know, at one level, I'm, I'm guessing what you're about. At the other level, I'm saying, you're me. You must be the same. Mm. So um, and and Don treads that um, well, treads that fine line not 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 necessarily very accurately. So at times he's seeing Hudson
0: and thinking, what Hudson needs is what I needed. Mm. So this book has so much heart. And well, thank great, you. Yeah. yeah. Well, you've you've been responsible for more than a few of my socially mm. embarrassing moments of laughter and tears in public places, uh, trains, cafes. 15 minutes before the interview when I'm sitting in the room trying to write my notes. Um, the Rosie result, it tackles head-on a, que- a question that was both in the Rosie project, the Rosie effect. Does Don have autism? Mm. Um, when we spoke last, time, four and a half years ago, this was still a really open question. And for fans <laughs> of the series, can you explain how Hudson actually changes things? Yeah, look, I think one of the things is the world has changed. Um, if you go back um,
1: when I wrote The Rosie Project, I could be a little coy about whether Don was autistic. Mm-hmm. Um, or, and as we would have said back in those days, whether he had Asperger's syndrome. Mm-hmm. And in, in fact, I did virtually zero research um, on Asperger's syndrome, as you would called it then. Um, I read a couple of memoirs, but they were memoirs that I'd not done as research for the book, but just in my general wide reading, if you like. Um, John Elder Roberson's book, kind of Look Me In The Eye, I'd read. But mainly I just drew it from life, from people that I'd... Um, studied with worked with who were my friends um, who were geeks in mm. effect but who'd never been diagnosed or if they had they were keeping quiet about it mm. um, and because they were they were not the group that psychiatrists see they were the group who were doing fine or doing well enough that they didn't need to seek help they were out in the workforce doing doing things in relationships and so forth they weren't in institutions or unable to leave the house or anything like that so I was seeing that that group and I thought Don is one of these guys without mm. putting a label on it and I acknowledged in the first book um, that you know, he might have Asperger's syndrome, or probably did, um, with the Aspie kids scene. But it was just a, a veiled reference. And even in the second book, um, I had that that reference where someone accuses him of having Asperger's syndrome, and he pushes back. And the psychiatrist says, "No, you can't, because you've got a functioning life. You're not being disadvantaged by it. So you're not disabled. You're you're fine." Um, but, it was, in fact, um, Tony Atwood, a very well-known um, guy in the field, um, professor, researcher of many books in the, in the field, who um, uh, uh, he liked the book. He recommends the, the rosy books. Who said, to, And I said to him, look, I don't know if Don has Asperger's or not because um, you know, I'm not a clinician. And Tony said, well, I'm a clinician, and I'm telling you Don Tillman has Asperger's syndrome. So mm-hmm. from then on, it was sort of a given, and I would say it in public, uh, public events. But our understanding... Um, has moved so much in those five years. The visibility—we talk about autism awareness. We now talk about autism as a, a embracing um, term for what we used to call Aspergers and various other you know, areas. Um, so, so our understanding, our, our awareness is greater. Um, I think activists in the field and far more people are stepping forward and coming out mm. and, and saying, "Look, I'm on I'm the spectrum. I'm, um, I'm autistic. What about it?" Mm. Um so it was impossible to go into this book without being much more direct about it. That someone like Don today or Hudson, people would just point straight away and say on the spectrum and mm. you need to deal with that.
0: So yeah, we, we have this incredibly changed world in, in what seems like a very short time, uh we can discuss ideas of community, an autistic community. Words like neurotypical and neurodiverse are, and, and you know and yeah, I mean mm. non-autistic. Yeah, these this is language that we just didn't have a few years ago. Mm. But it's still not it's still not uncontroversial to to discuss this widely, and there are people who will shy away. And this is a part of the story. There was a scene that I found particularly affecting. So we've got Don and Rosie. They've they've had um, the school has brought to their attention that Hudson is having trouble settling in. And so they've been encouraged to attend a seminar and they've gone to the seminar on Autism Spectrum Disorder.
1: Let me, let me just cut in here. And what, one of the interesting things here, I think, is that the school has said we'd like him to get a diagnosis. Why would the school like a diagnosis? And that's a question in itself. Um, one is it puts a label and they say, then we know what we're dealing with. We can mm. put him in a slot, and also that it may affect their funding situation because they've then got a disability and so forth. And we see these external forces, neither of which is necessarily in the direct interest of the child, Mm. impacting on decisions. And Don and Rosie are pushing back a bit on that.
0: Absolutely. And so at this seminar, there are two speakers. One is the mother of a child on the spectrum, and the other is an autistic woman who is an advocate and an activist. And they heatedly debate things like therapy techniques and advocacy, even language, and I've very carefully, they used the the person first, and then the person with autism versus autistic person, yeah, versus yeah. autistic person in my in my description. But does this scene reflect in any way the, the research and the conversations that you had in preparing the book? Was this part of the process that we're seeing here? Oh, look this. Um
1: I could have just about written that scene cold after attending um, one particular seminar on autism in in Western Australia a year or two ago. Um, I've been... One of the nice things about these books is that they have been embraced by the autism community not universally but very close to Mm -hmm. it i get almost entirely positive feedback about the representation of autism so now with the books selling far more than i ever expected i'm very conscious of that of that responsibility Mm -hmm. but part of it is i get invitations to be a keynote speaker at at autism conferences um and i go along and i spend after i've done my speech i i sit around and listen and the speeches that i heard at, at just one conference then, be one of several, would have been enough to write that scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from and so, it's very, very reflective of the sort of debates that are going on. Or I could have just hooked onto Twitter and watched people um, argue these these points about person first language, about whether um, applied behaviour analysis is, uh, is an appropriate um, response to autism, um, all all of these all of these sorts of issues. Uh, just that scene that you're talking about, mm-hmm. um, and this is a bit of a craft question. One of the things I wanted to do in the book was actually tell people quite a bit about what was being debated in the the autism world. And that can make for a very dry reading. Sort of Uh, an info dump type of thing. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's right. And I had to avoid the info dump on it. Mm. So that was, um, I guess, a writer's way of saying, let's put some conflict in. Let's have two people at each other's throats. Let's throw Don and Rosie into the mix. Let's have a full-on brawl about these issues. And let's have some drama. And and I think that that's a very palatable way for us to take in that sort
0: of information. Mm. And I think for fans, and I I feel like I'm talking a lot to fans in our (laughs) conversation because there are so many people that love these books, in that, you also uh, you challenged a lot of the issues that were going to then emerge throughout the rest of the book, and you put Don and Rosie in a really interesting situation where Rosie immediately broke the rule that she'd put uh, on Don yeah. going to the seminar, and we start to see a little bit of... Don's evolution since the the previous book where he is a much more savvy person. He still applies his very logical thinking, but he's able to do it in such a way that he is he is savvy. He is Uh, perhaps not obvious to himself but to other people he is much more able to roll with things yeah look I think the manifestation of
1: Don's autistic traits if you want to put it that way is more subtle than it was in the earlier books and it's not just because I'm a better writer (laughs) although I'd like to think that's part of it but because he has grown and evolved and he is you know, the word that would be used is masking some of his autistic traits. He knows that it's easy to get on in society if he if he follows some of the rules. He's learnt to do this, and he's he's getting on with it. We saw him exactly as he was when he met Rosie. We would think that he was a um, a dumber guy than his profession would suggest. Mm. Um, you know, he's he's learning. He's smart, um, and he really wants to give those same sort of smarts to his son Hudson, so Hudson will also be able to mask those traits. Mm. And I think one of the big changes for me. Um, in the book, is that in the first two books, Don's almost a, um, an archetypal truth teller. Mm. He's the guy that we that, that calls calls things out as they are, and we say, "Yes, you are so right. You know, your your autistic brain, if you like, has seen the truth." Um, in this book, I wanted to see more examples of where he got it wrong, um, and we were already invested in Don. He's our hero. And I got some very, very heavy pushback from um, a couple of editors overseas because of one thing that Don does in the book, which they didn't want him to do. And I said, look, this is an authentic mistake for Don to make. We've Mm -hmm. got to deal with the fact that there's a good-hearted person Mm -hmm. who's done a bad thing. And how are we going to deal with that? Mm -hmm. Um, We can't just say all the time, whenever he does it, that was the right thing to do. We've got to recognize the ambiguity,
0: the conflict, the fact that being who he is sometimes gets him into trouble. Mm I would I would love to talk about the the nitty gritty of some of Don's decisions and the way you the way you evolve his character through the book, but I want to I want to get into something that you've touched on the way the books have been embraced by the autistic community and what that might mean because we've already talked about how the discussion has changed so much in recent years. You only have to get onto to Twitter and look at the way the autistic community are discussing issues that are affecting them, um, and this is. Important in any community that might be uh, being impacted by what a dominant culture sees as as what's right for them, what's wrong for them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And we have this idea that if you can't see it, you can't be it. So you've—it seems to me that the rosy result kind of firmly enters this space of what being neurotypical, what being neurodiverse means, and what it could mean.
1: Yeah. Look, um, I guess just to pick up a number of points that you've raised. One is, is Twitter for mm. example twitter was a fantastic research tool for me because i wanted to see what conversations were being had unfiltered mm. and the autistic community is quite visible um not necessarily always represented of the whole community i think that's probably um more women on twitter than you might expect um discussing these issues mm. um because i think um Autistic females have been a real hidden, hidden group of people for a long time, but they're up and very, very visible. And I love that you touch on that in yeah. the book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd like to have done more, but I, yeah, you know, I could have made Hudson female, but frankly, I just wanted that picture that Don saw himself um, in Hudson, um, and and by the end of the last book, he was male, So I was <laughs> sort of stuck with it, um, but. If you go to a conference, you, you see very carefully filtered mm. opinions, if you like. When you watch a pile-on on Twitter, you, you see what people what makes people angry, what makes them emotional, mm. and so on. And I just sort of sat back a little and watched some of that play out. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I think w- as a writer, you have to be able to inhabit as much as possible the space of each one of, of your mm. characters. And because I've got several autistic characters in the book, most notably our narrator, Don, um, I've got to be able to wear that hat and, and we get into the question of appropriation, whether it's so, because I don't identify as autistic, mm. um, it's whether um, I'm, I should be allowed to do that, and I claim the right to do that, but only after I've I've really, really done my homework.
0: So I want to think a little bit more broadly because I found throughout the book some really challenging themes around advocacy and agency, and not just about around ideas of autism and autism spectrum disorder. So we have Blanche, uh, who is an albino and has parents who have. I'm going to say some misguided idea. I'm going to just try and be as, as nice, but I don't want to. Well, no, no, they, mm. they, they 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 don't believe in conventional medicine. Mm. They simple, don't believe it. Simple yet. as that. So they, you know,
1: naturopathy, homeopathy. Mm. In fact, yeah,
0: um, yeah. So we have we have Blanche's search for medical autonomy. Her parents really want to pursue these non medical treatments. We have Hudson, who has um, a need to find a way to be himself. Uh, against, I guess, the wishes of his school and his parents, wanting to, uh, I'm going to air air quote here, protect him. Paternalism seems to be rife, uh, and many of the loudest and least informed voices in the book are male. Is this something, as a broad issue, we need to examine as a society? Look, I I
1: think the thing that I would would pick out of all of that when we talk about the loud, the misinformed voices and so (laughs) forth, is there are so many people who are not really acting in Hudson's interests. Mm. Um, I had a conversation the other night, a number of people around the table um, about autism, and the example they chose to talk about was a kid who had, in Canada, so he had to reach a long way, a Mm. kid in Canada who had, had his school hours restricted by the school because he'd engaged in unacceptable, inappropriate activities, which included violence. So, of course, you bring in violence, and of course, everybody's yeah, it's the extreme end of the whole scale mm. but the conversation was all about what must it be like for the other kids in the class, what about the teacher what about the parents of the other kids in the class what about the parents of the mm. autistic kid who now got nobody at any stage tried to inhabit the, the, the point of view of the autistic kid mm. what drove him to this what was upsetting him, how does he feel in this class, so so, so much advice that, that gets laid on is about making the world more comfortable, even though we wouldn't say it in quite those terms, but for the neurotypical people, rather than the
0: person who's got um, the difficulties. In the character, though, I I, I want to just explore more this this broad issue, because in the character of, gosh, it's it's Gary the homeopath, isn't it? Gary the homeopath. Gary the homeopath. <laughs> he is very, very loud, very uninformed, but so fearful of someone cracking his worldview, that he will not even countenance another view for the sake of his daughter. We have um, Judas, <laughs> Rosie's boss, who is very much uh, going to talk uh, against her and not really... Uh, she, he's, he's paternalistic and talking down to her, And even though he p- proclaims to have her interests at heart. We have these male voices who are seeking to have best interests at heart without the, the work. They're, they're stealing agency but saying they're doing it in best interests. I'm interested in, in, in the gender um, and the
1: gendering of this from your, from your point of view because I, w- I would say, I mean, and I've had um, one of my readers, female mm. by the way since we're talking gender, mm. says that in my books I'm too kind to women. Mm. Um, well, I think I'm pretty kind to men as well. Generally, I I, I, I think there's I think one of the themes of the book mm. is forgiveness. Mm. Um, of all the books, I don't have many genuine baddies. There's you know the nearest thing you get is perhaps Gary the
0: homeopath. Um, yeah. And we and but even in characters like Rabbit, uh, Rabbit, the teacher who is. Clearly, as it emerges through the book, a caring, sensitive person who does want the best for the kids he teaches, we see a little bit of this phenomenon I'm going to call white men shouting, where you've got people that are just so afraid to lose a little bit of their platform that they just erase people yeah yeah this is the um, this is the primary
1: school physical education teacher who once played cricket for Victoria so mm. you know this is his his thing and and that's his, that's his identity mm. and the fact that he's got a gay brother who died of AIDS and that sort of thing is just a little bit more complexity mm. in his life but I, I would say back to you mm. that there are female characters in the book um, the principal for example I think some is yeah. probably less kind than the Rabbit the mm. teacher um, she's and the teachers who've read the book tell me, yep, yeah, this is reasonably authentic she 's concerned about i think I think Catholic Church pardon me, but the institution's yeah. reputation yeah. ahead of perhaps the welfare of an individual mm. an individual child without necessarily being a cruel and, and nasty person um, and, and on the other hand, the principal at the high school mm. is is a, is male and quite gentle and accepting and mm. so forth so I, I wouldn't have thought that i um, that i was particularly gender specific in my in my
0: goodies and baddies if you no, like. I don't think it was you. I think that's a really accurate reflection <laughs> of society. <laughs> so at the risk at the risk of us making um, making this sound too much like a polemic. <laughs> the Rosie result has it's just got this enormous heart. It's there's so much that we can't talk about because you don't want to spoil aspects of the book and part okay. of it is Well one of the funny things
1: I mean for me anyway mm-hmm. is i read a review of it mm-hmm. by by another author um Oh, I guess that's Cass Moriarty um, wrote, mm. wrote a, and she's going to be interviewing me at some stage. Um, she wrote a very nice and very positive review about it. One of the things she said was, this is a light read. I think I've got mm. the words right. This is a light read. And then a few sentences on, she says, it touches on or it examines issues of you know, autonomy, identity, obesity, you know, drug, whatever it might be. Mm. All, all of these things. And, and for me, those are not... Comp- I would say easy read rather than light read. And perhaps you know, there's a sense with light read that it's an unimportant book. And I don't, yeah. I don't want to put um, – I don't want to sort of talk this up in the wrong way or, or, or boast about it. But just, just to say that just because something's an easy read doesn't mean it can't tackle absolutely profound, profound mm. issues. Just to say stand-up comedians can touch some of the most profound issues um, while while having us you know, laughing Hilarious, or uncomfortably, or whatever.
0: I too, I too have been guilty of of calling books not the rosy result, but a, a a light read, because what I meant was the author's hand was so deft that you you couldn't feel it in the book, and so the words just flowed. and And this is a book. Well, I'm happy to take that. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, I distinctly remember when I uh, when I read the Rosy Project, I read it. In a day, and not even a day. I caught the train up to Newcastle for the um, the National Young Writers Festival, and it took me uh, both train rides. So it took me about three and a half, four hours to read the whole book. And when I think of a light read, I look at, I think about a book that I don't even feel like I'm reading it. This yeah. is definitely not light in content. <laughs> no, no. One of the things that makes it an easy read, mm. um, it's a technical thing in
1: some ways, but it's an artifact of Don's voice, mm. um, or Don's personality. Don is not interested in his surroundings. Mm on, uh, only insofar as they affect what he, what he's doing. So if it's raining, you're going to have to put on a raincoat or something, yep. but he's not going to bother telling you it was raining outside because he's doing something that's got anything to do with the rain. So you have virtually no pauses in the book to describe mm. location um, and, and that, there was that's sort of difficult for me because it's set in Melbourne, which, you know, is a, there's a lot of description you could do mm. and you simply have to incorporate that into the action. So he came racing across the grass or we went out to the back garage to do this. Okay. you go to garage. Uh, so
0: so yeah. no, no five page musings on uh, his memories of a Madeline as a child then? No, <laughs> no, there's
1: very little sensory stuff mm. um, except as it informs what he's going to do. Um, and yet, you know, Frankly, a lot of readers will skip over. That's um, what Elmore Leonard said. He leaves out the bits that people skip over. Uh, and people will skip over description. They say, well, yep. I don't need to know this to find out where they're going
0: to sleep together. So I'll keep reading. Perhaps if he could find a way to uh, to find the perfect freezing point of the the mix for the Madeline to get the... <laughs> I'm I'm alluding to the bar. We haven't even talked about the bar that Don opens up. I love, I love everything that Don does in this. And the way he is, he just expediates all the decisions that so many of us are anxious over. But... We'll talk all day about this. Um, now, the the voice you are listening to is Graham Simpson, and we are discussing The Rosie Result, which is the third, the final, which is... It's sad mm. It's sad for me because I have loved these books. I'm just going to read them again, though, um, of The Rosie series. Now, you might have uh, picked up that there are so many questions I would have liked to have asked Graham, but, um, of course, I can't lock him in the studio all day. If you would like to hear Graham speak, if you would like to discover more about The Rosie Result, he is doing some events in Sydney... On Wednesday, the sixth of February, uh, at six thirty PM, you can check out the launch of the Rosie Result. It's at Mossman Library. He's going to be in conversation with his co-author. Um, he is also her husband and uh, Buist. Am I pronouncing it Bus. Buist, 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 and Buist. Uh, they co-authored Two Steps Forward together. So, I hearing them discuss each other. I've chatted to Anne on the show before as well. Hearing them discuss books together would be just fantastic. On and the... she won't tell me the questions in advance. Really? <laughs> so she knows all the all the uh, all
1: the spots that are dangerous to go and she's doubtless going to
0: do it brilliant on thursday the 7th if you uh, feel like having a bite while listening to graham there is a luncheon in conversation at the rocks four season hotel if you're listening online graham's also got events in melbourne canberra and adelaide in the week following that so for details and for tickets you can go to the text publishing website it's textpublishing.com.au graham thank you so much for coming into the studio thank you Andrew. you has been a delight <laughs> that's it for this great conversation with graham simsian Graham's latest book is The Rosy Result, and it's out now through text publishing. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest books, writing and literary culture, follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER and click subscribe in your podcast app to get a new Great Conversation every week. My name is Andrew Popel, and I'll be back next week with more great conversations.